Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Wild Connection. We had a little hiatus last week because yours truly was traveling. I was interviewing some incredible women scientists that will be part of the special series that is starting next week. I also took some time to get in a day with birds, hundreds of thousands of birds, coots, tundra swans, snow geese, white pelicans, and a plethora of ducks, all of whom migrated south for the winter. This ties into this week's episode because my guest, Dr. Andreas Vidal-Gadea, and I are talking about one of the greatest mysteries around, how animals navigate in that magical way that they do. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. This episode is a fun one for me because, well, I have um, a navigational difficulty. Okay, I'll be more precise. I can navigate perfectly well in exactly the opposite direction I should be going. That means if I was a snow goose that was supposed to end up on Pea Island in North Carolina, all the way from Alaska, I would end up somewhere near the Philippines instead. I have what I like to call directional dyslexia. And I found out I'm not the only one. Dr. Andreas Vidal-Gadea is an associate professor of molecular neuroethology at Illinois State University, and he's studying the molecular and cellular basis of behavior. His research is making waves, electromagnetic waves, that is. So without any further delay, Andres, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I am, you know, I'm excited to have you on because you're doing some really cool work on how animals navigate the environment. And before we get into all the the juicy details of your research and all the amazing things that you're finding, I really love introducing people to scientists and who they are and kind of how they got to where they are. So, you know, what led you to be interested in science in general, before we get to your specific research? Well, I, uh, I was always kind of fascinated by science. And I, like many kids, when I first started, wanted to become an, uh, you know, an astronaut, right? And then, uh, uh, and then I learned that people blow up in space, you know, if you don't have space, it now seems like a pretty terrible thing. Uh, yeah. So I became interested in other things, uh, physics for the longest time. And eventually, uh, when I went to undergrad, like many people found some uh, really amazing mentors that kind of uh, show me what science can be and what it can do and how fascinating it is. And a lot of my interest kind of comes through their lens, you know, so I always tell my students, you know, I, we could be anything, could be an astronomer or, you know, or a physicist or a chemist. It's just a lot of the time it's science what you love, you know, and just because it lets you play and explore and you never get the feeling that you are working, you know, even when you are you're doing all these crazy hours, it always feels like you're playing. 
Yeah. Uh, and so I love that. And in addition to that, like many people, for me, I'm first generation uh, student. And so science was kind of uh, uh, an avenue, like one of the only ways I could see that I could kind of change my, you know, outcome in life and kind of have command over what I wanted to do with my life. And, and so um, going to school and doing great uh, and having opportunities to proceed, that, that was like, not just a past into doing something that I love, but also into kind of moving out of, you know, up and from, from my station, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Well, I can relate to that. I'm also a first generation college uh, graduate in my family. My brother came before me, you know, but we were the first in our um, family to go yeah. to college. And he went on to be a doctor, which is, you know, a lot of first generation yeah. get feel pressure to go in certain directions and playing in science isn't usually one of them. I know. I know. And I'm sure you had to make this decision, right? Because my, my family, uh, as far as they're concerned, you, you could go to school and do three things. You know, you could be an engineer, a doctor or a banker or, or a lawyer or something like that. You know, those were like it. Uh, and they didn't know there was anything else. And then all of a sudden, here you are with this amazing chance. And are you going to go for those things that are kind of like the tested and true things? Or are you going to take a chance to risk that what you just got, you know, and go for something crazy, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So like you, I went on the crazy path and I, right. I'll never forget, you know, my, my, uh, one of my parents said, well, it's too bad. You didn't become a real doctor like your brother. He's doing really well. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. if you measure success in money, right. 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 <laughs> you know, yes. I remember my, my dad was like, when he was alive, you know, every time I see him every few years, he'll be like, uh, so I'm not anymore in undergrad. I'm now in grad school. It's like, if you're doing so well in school, how come you had to stay there? You know, like, well, shouldn't you be out of there right now? Like, <laughs> it was like, yeah, I guess you're right. I, I wanted- <laughs> right. Yes. Well, and it's funny. I just had um, a professor and author, um, Jeju Lanham on. He's a, a cultural and conservation ornithologist, and he was on a a, a scholarship for engineering. Right. And completely like abandoned it to go play in the woods. Um, And so but you know what? When you pursue what you are passionate about, that's when you do amazing things and you are doing amazing things. So, you know, we share an interest in in understanding how animals interact in their environment. And I also look at how they interact with each other. And and this is through their behavior. And, And you focus on. How, you know, how they make sense of their environment. So how did you get involved in sort of cellular mechanisms and neuro, you know, neurobiology um, of behavior? Yeah. So that that was kind of like my entrance into this, into biology actually was through the behavior. Because I, I thought at first I wanted to become a neuropsychologist and look at why people and how we do the things that we do, you know. And, and, you know, I was always fascinated. It's like, why does it do that? How does it help you survive? Or, you know, what is the, the reason for such and such things? And, uh, and then um, I joined a lab in the biology department, which was the only place I could see a neuron. because so I was halfway through my undergrad in neuropsychology and I still hadn't seen a neuron. And I was like, I can't really study brains if I haven't seen a neuron all the way out of here, you know? And <laughs> so I walk across to the biology building and there were people working with real brains and real neurons. Um, and this was in behavior. And I was just so fascinated 
but the idea of this highly complex machine inside of all of us kind of making sense of the of the world around us, you know, and uh, and, and that just the beauty of, of that, you know, and, and one of the things that Dorothy Paul, which I, I'm going to name, uh, who was the person that introduced me to this work, uh, is that, you know, she was working on the tail flip of this crayfish and how they do that to escape, you know, predators and so on. And I was just so fascinated because the way that she she showed it to me, it was like this beautiful kind of symphony, you know, of behavior. You see the final product of something of of this very product, this very elaborate production, you know, that has this history behind, you know, because every animal has its own evolutionary history. So it will not be the same, you know, if it played out in a different way. And and then you have the environment that is ever changing and the conductor, which is the brain trying to make sense of everything, you know, to keep everyone in tune, uh, you know, your muscles and your skeleton. And, and so to me, that, that was such a beautiful thing. It's one of those things where like art and, and, and science kind of meet, you know, and, and to me, I see that beauty in, in all the behaviors and animals that, that, I, that we I've looked since. Uh, and so I was sold on that. And, I was fortunate as an undergrad to get a, a fellowship at the Friday Harbor Labs uh, in San Juan Islands. I, at this time, I was living in Victoria, British Columbia, which is a 30-minute ferry away from, uh, right from, from these labs. And I, and I had a chance to go there. And they were working. One of the projects that I got into was looking at this sea slug. Uh, this thing looks like you're as big as your foot. It's huge. And uh, no, I'm not talking about your foot, anyone's foot. You know? and, uh, and, okay, uh, so you know, you're saying I have big feet. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, they live in the bottom of the ocean, you know, in pitch dark, and they find a way around. And one of the ways they do that is using the magnetic field. And at the time, it was one of the only animals for which people had recorded from the brain. Uh, and it's so alien. The animal looks so alien. It looks like the cross between a, some, a mammoth and, and a snail, you know, and it's beautiful in color and it's huge. And it lives in an alien environment. And I mean, to me, it was like, forget going to outer space. This thing is like right here and it's doing things that we don't understand. Uh, and so I got started. That was like my first poster as an undergrad. Uh, and we found some particles in there that, that were promising uh, enough that they got a grant on that and, and they worked on this thing and people still working on them. Uh, of course, they are really hard to come by because you had to get them and they like to live in the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and so you had to go find this thing uh, before you can work with them. But that was that planted the seed on me and, and I kept on looking at behavior, mostly locomotion, because it's repetitive and you can measure you know, a step fall over and over again, and that's relatively straightforward comparing to many behaviors. Right. But um, but eventually, when uh, I started to to think about projects for my own research for my own lab, uh, I kind of came by this idea again, and I went back to this this idea of magnetic orientation. Uh, and I yeah, I kind of by an accident 
I found out that these little critters I was working with were doing this. But um, yeah. yeah, and we're going to talk about that. You know, it's interesting. I also majored in neuropsychology. Um, they called it psychobiology. Mm-hmm. And I took all I'm sure I took many of the same courses. And for me, the I was never fascinated with why people do what they do. It was always why do other animals do this or that. And and that's similarly, you know, but I never thought about it from the brain perspective. Right. I just I always thought about it from the interactive perspective um, in in sort of the symphony of the environment they're living in. But I really loved how you said the brain is the conductor trying to make sense. And some brains make beautiful music and other brains (laughs) make heavy metal uh, music (laughs) Um, or, you know, and so we're still talking about animals here. Uh, sure, sure. We're talking about we're talking about animals, um, and and so we have a, a sense now of how you started orienting towards navigation, yeah. and you know I'm going to throw in so many navigational puns here. That's all right. That's all good. <laughs> I won't be the only one. Yeah. Um, you know, and as you mentioned, people have been curious about how animals find their way around for some time. And you mentioned one, and we're going to talk specifically about magnetic field, but what are some of the other ideas that people have had about how animals figure out how to get places? Great. Yeah. That, that is fascinating because we, we're so biased in our approach to the world, right? We obviously inherited this amazing set of detectors uh, and we see the world and think about the world through them. And so some of the ways that the ancient kind of ways, if you go back in evolution and you think about little things that, you know, have no name anymore, you know, they, they, that move around, you know, chemicals would be one thing, you know, um, that, that organisms have been good at, um, sensing, uh, is important. You know, most organisms need to consume things in order to grow and, and, and thrive. Uh, and so detecting them uh, seems to be a pretty important thing and it still remains uh, a very important sensory modality uh, for, for all organ for many uh, animals. Um, but then you have also touch being, and so to me, like touching and, and chemo sensation and, and, and touch sensation uh, into, into a way that kind of almost like the same because the chemo sensation is touching. Uh, it's just recognizing something uh, by a hand, handshake, right? Like you, you're interacting with a chemical in their environment and know who, what that is. But then being able to sense objects or uh, prey or predators in your environment, also very important. Uh, so to me, those are kind of the two main uh, kind of sensory modalities, but chemo sensation would be the one where you can find your way towards or away from something. And so if I was thinking about actual uh, an organism having to to find its way in its environment and travel it and traverse it to find something, uh, it would be chemo sensation. What I will imagine, right? Like this sensing a chemical and it's following, it's tracking it and, and trying to find its way to it, or it's trying to avoid uh, something, maybe a predator or some noxious chemical in its environment and trying to find a way away from it. Is, is that like how salmon, where they've characterized how they find their original rivers where they were born, that it's chemical signatures that they're yeah, tracking? Yeah, it's, and it's challenging because so many of these things, uh, organisms' behavior needs to be robust because you, you often can only get it wrong once, you know. And so 
in many ways, yes, there is definitely uh, uh, fish are extremely good at sensing chemicals that are water, uh, you know, soluble. So that things that are in, in the water, um, they're able to, to, to memorize and to learn maybe like you have print imprints of different combinations of cocktails that they can recall. Um, the salmon, for example, many of them, are, as you, you may know, that they can use, for example, magnetic cues to follow their way around and uh, and perhaps other cues as well. So we 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 have this human um, bias sometimes when when we come at, across these things because we have such prominent organs, you know, for detecting uh, information. Uh, you know, you look at an eye and you know exactly what it's supposed to do, and you look at a nose and you know, and an ear. Uh, and, and we kind of process this information separately, but a lot of the times those things are there uh, not to detect any one particular that is cue, but to help you produce a behavior or to you know mount some activity that involves many inputs, right? And right. so they're not really operating. Uh, there might be very few things where you only use your eyes or you only use your nose or you only use your ears. And most of the time, really the behavior calls for all of these inputs coming in together to, to just to increase the robustness and the chances of surviving that. Um, so, yeah, but yes, uh, uh, following the chemical trails. Uh, I mean, I think of, obviously I think of my, my little critters and worms, which are excellent at doing this and they have thousands of receptors for, for sensing uh, thousands of genes for uh, helping them uh, sense the environment chemically. Uh, but, you know, Greyhounds, humans. Um, I tell my students when I'm telling them or introducing them to these things uh, to imagine they come into my lab and, you know, and they're really hungry and I have a pizza in the back of the lab and I have a camera on the ceiling. And then based on what sensory modality I allow them to use, I'm going to track their behavior and they're going to do something different. Right. So like if yeah. the lights are on, they're going to straight for the pizza and it's a straight line. But if the lights are off, they're going to have to use their nose and now they're going to do sampling, you know, and so they're going to do a different behavior. Uh, and, you know, you can take out different inputs uh, and, and observe a different behavior. But normally they will be using basically all of these things at once. Right. Not, not right. Just. And they're also going to be tracking other students and how close they are to said pizza. Absolutely, yes, um, absolutely. You might get some scramble competition going. You're right. Um, so, 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 you know, that's a really nice transition into navigating. So, because uh, animals navigate, as you already said, in many ways to find food, to avoid situations, uh, and and to they have to navigate their environment. So, before we get to the you know, ins and outs of how animals might be using the magnetic field and how you went about testing that. Many people may not even realize that the earth has a magnetic field. So, you know, can you give me or give us, right, a little sense of where does this magnetic field come from? How is it generated? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, so many planets in our solar system have a magnetic field and this is a consequence of um, <clears throat> the nature of the planet. So our planet has a solid iron core at its very center, but this is surrounded by liquid iron core, uh, outer core that is basically continuously rotating around the, the solid core. And this motion uh, basically produces this magnetic field. It's kind of similar to what a, an electric motor will be doing, right? When you have basically the charges moving around uh, and a circle and basically 
inducing the formation of this very strong field. I mean, in our planet, it's not a super strong, the magnetic field compared to other planets, uh, but it's basically this, it moves and, and even the, even the, the liquid core kind of uh, changes over time. So the magnetic field is not exactly the same all the time. And it, at some points, you may even reverse polarity where it starts to change uh, and move. So unlike our geographic North and South Pole, which you know you can calculate, you know, and the the magnetic poles are are never quite in the same spot. They're always kind of changing, uh, and that's a that's a consequence of this kind of fluid nature of of the engine that that is generating it. Uh, and so you can think the way I I think of the magnetic field is like you can think of it as kind of pouring out uh, of the South magnetic pole uh, straight out of the ground, and it's traveling vertical, you know, above, away from you. And then it kind of travels out into space, kind of two, about three Earth radia away from the Earth. So even the space station, that's still within the, the magnetic field of the Earth. Really? Uh, yeah. So, that, so it's not just on the surface of the Earth. Uh, and then it kind of wraps around uh, the planet so that uh, around the magnetic equator, you can think of this lines kind of parallel to the ground, like power lines would be, right? Uh, and then they kind of wraps back and then comes back into the North Magnetic Pole where it kind of pours back into the ground. There is also very vertical. And so as a consequence of this, the magnetic field is strongest at those points at the, at the North and the South Magnetic Poles where, where the, the field is like kind of coming in, pouring into like a single point, so to speak. Uh, and it's more is weaker uh, closer to the magnetic equator. And, and this has some kind of really interesting um, correlates with animal navigation that, that we can talk about later of, of animals and the threshold for detecting it and using it, right. uh, which, uh, um, which changes based on where you are in the world, right? And where the magnetic field is. Okay. Uh, yeah. Wow. So there's so much there to unpack. And, you know, um, so that, so this is going to sound like a stupid question. Uh Is this how like compasses work? Are they like connecting with this magnetic field? Yeah. Yeah. So the compass is uh, a piece of iron that is magnetic, right? Somebody was magnetized. Actually, that one here. A gift from my first PhD student. Okay, uh, and, uh, I'm getting a lesson, everyone, in how yeah. compasses work. <laughs> and, and so uh, this iron has basically is magnetized. So the north is aligned with the needle, uh, the magnetization in this in this uh, iron, and the north is pointing towards the red uh, in the tip of the needle. And and the needle is allowed is is pivoting on a, itself is pivoting on a needle, so it can freely move. Uh, and, and rotate however it wants. Uh, and what happens is when you uh, put this and you allow it to move, the Earth magnetic field, the force, this force field would basically interact with it and, and push it so it's aligned, becomes aligned with the magnetic field. As okay. long as I or some one of my students hasn't been playing with it with a strong magnet, magnet compass don't last very long in my lab because we have a lot of magnets and that uh, we can remagnetize things and break them very easily. <laughs> so I keep this one in my office so that. Okay. You know, but uh, yeah, so so that's the idea. And, and the cool thing to me about this, it, like I tell people when they visit the lab, it's like if I ate this, 
I, I have no experience of the magnetic field. It's going right through my body, and I yet I don't feel it, you know. Uh, and if I ate this compass and you took an X-ray picture of my stomach, the needle will be pointing north inside my stomach, and yet I have no clue, you know. And, and so to <laughs> me, that uh, that is just fascinating, you know. Yeah. Like, it's like a, a dimension that we are not aware of that is still there, you know, in that somehow creatures large and small throughout evolution have been able to tap on that and we have uh but through technology rather than uh, evolution right right well so it's interesting because to me i'm gonna make a confession here so i you know i'm a field biologist and many field biologists know how to use a compass and despite many lessons I think, and so I feel comforted when you said that sometimes this magnetic field can reverse directions, right? Um, I think I was born at a time where it was in an opposite direction because I, I don't know if anybody if has a dyslexia for navigation, but I do. So if we, if we travel in a forest, and you know we're supposed to go right and you just say which way should we go i will a hundred percent go the opposite direction this was the same in physics when i had to draw circuits i reversed them a hundred percent yeah everything reversed so if i were a species that needed to rely on navigation to survive and i didn't have google maps uh I would be lost all right. the time. I, I literally go in the opposite direction with, with great accuracy. It's more than random chance. I, I think that, that you are, you are onto something there. I, I think that's just a human thing. And if we, if we were any good at this, you know, if we were very good at navigating, we, you know, we wouldn't have ended up all over the world. We'd all still be in Africa, you know, but it's, we're so terrible at it. that You know, people keep saying, I'll be right back. And next thing you know. <laughs> That's what happened. Right. They were like, I'm just going out to pick some berries. And next yeah, thing you know. ask for directions. No, no, it's this way. Yeah, then you're yeah. in Siberia and you're like, I guess right. I'm just staying here now. Yeah, you right. know, and send out a search, you know, go find our family. And then they yeah. end up in another place. I, I like this idea of how humans manage to get everywhere. Um, so, but many species use magnetic earth and you said, you know, big and small, and, and we're often in awe of sort of larger creatures in the oceans and in the skies, but you became enamored with a little one yeah. and you use, um, sea elegance, right? So, so tell us about your, um, study animal and why it's so interesting. Oh my gosh, uh, this program could be very long. If I, we go, I love this species. Uh, well, I love all species, but as an organism, this is one of those animals where people usually start studying an animal because they like it and then, then they learn about it and then they find a reason why they're, they're studying it, right? And in the case of this animal, Sidney Brenner, uh, back in the day, this, uh, this amazing scientist, he was trying to look genetics with animals and he figured out that since Watson and Crick figured out what the double helix was and all that, that the next final frontier was going to be the, the brain, the nervous system, how genes give rise to brains and behavior. And he made a shopping list of a research animal that could be used for kind of molecular work. And, and he had a long list of 
qualities, you know, short generation time and uh, behavior, you know, some behaviors have to be there and so on. And he passed this around and somebody came to him and said, you should try these little worms. And, uh, and from that moment on, the list of attributes for this species uh, have grown and grown. He didn't know but at the time, but yes, they have the same number of genes we have, like 20,000 genes about. They, many of these genes are, are transferable. So like we have about 60 to 80% kind of similarity between them. And, and many of the proteins that they encode are also so close that you can literally do a swap and you know, nobody would be the wiser between the <laughs> and the human. And, but then, you know, they're transparent. So you can see inside of them, literally you can see their brains or, or the nervous system. You can do things that he didn't know at the time, uh, but it turns out you can freeze them solid, keep them in the freezer for like 50 years and take them out and they'll start moving around like nothing ever happened. So you can, I have a refrigerator, a freezer, negative 80, in my lab, packed with thousands of individual strains of these animals waiting for a student to ask me for them to, to do a project. Wow. Um, and so all of those things, they have uh, their, their nervous system is fairly concise. So we have 302 neurons. We know every one of the neurons by name. We know all the connections between the neurons. And I tell my students, this is like having, well, they don't have Facebook anymore. So I had to find a different analogy, but <laughs> right. it's like, Coming like that's right. Facebook is for old people now. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I open a Twitter and a whatever TikTok thing, but I still don't know what they use them for. So I, I'm waiting for somebody to come and show. But anyway, so they, they, it's like having the account to everyone. So when a neuron is involved in something, you know, all the other neurons that it talks to and listens to, you know, the connections. So it makes the job of figuring things out a lot easier. Uh, and the list goes on and on. And, and not least of that is the community that, that you know, all the, the groups of scientists that work with this. Science sometimes can be very competitive and never for people who are scientists out there. Uh, and so it depends, though, uh, in, in the field. And in this particular field, people are extremely uh, good nature and sharing and welcoming. Uh, and so we all share. People publish things. And the very same day the paper comes out, you know, you send them an email and they send you everything they got, you know, all the reagents and the, and the strains. Wow. Uh, and they are really invested in helping each other out. And, and that, having been around the block, you know, and jump from a few models to one organism to another, uh, I thought of it very special. I know it's not the only place, you know, but uh, that, that happens, but it, it really has an impact not just on the scientific experience, uh, but also on the human experience of, of, of doing science, you know? So yeah. I love that. So lots of lots of different advantages. And the, the, the final one is, well, two of the final ones is number one, they do things. I, I remember somebody told me when I was jumping onto them from insects, uh, insects have all these amazing behaviors, you know, and it's like, they're worms. They just wiggle, you know, they don't do anything, you know, it's like, are you sure you want to become a behavior person working with worms? You know, they what just can wiggle. Okay. I know, <laughs> and it's true, they do wiggle, but they wiggle with purpose, you know, and, uh, and so they, they are, they, they have this amazing, we know so little about these animals, and there is so many species, and this is just one of them. Right. Uh, and they're all around us, all under our feet, you know, and 
wow, I just amazed at the, the world that's out there untapped, you know, for people to look at. And then the final thing is that I like to think of it as a very democratic species because in my lab, uh, we have high school students uh, anytime, anywhere between like two to five or six high school interests as young as 14 years old, people as old, you know, as retired people that never went to school, everybody can come and in short order, learn how to work with these animals and be able to produce meaningful data and that you can use, you know, and that is not true of every system, right? I certainly worked on, on some, I, I can, you know, for example, the locust where it had to do this very invasive surgery in the thorax and then record from the cells. And that was tough yeah, surgery and, and a tough experiment. Not everyone could do that, uh, sure. you know, but these animals, gosh, everyone, anyone who wants to can, you know, jump on them and like uh, basically start, you know, doing science. And, uh, and I really like that. Well, you know, you've made me now want to come to your lab and do some things. To. And and I think you inadvertently created a hashtag wiggle with purpose. OK, <laughs> right. so in as a life lesson, right, if you're going to wiggle, wiggle with purpose. That's right. Um, <laughs> so the, the passion you have for your um, for science, for your study organism, um, these little wiggling worms, uh, you know, I, I have some other questions, but I'm going to stick to navigation because yes. you figured out that they're tapping into this magnetic field. Yeah. OK, first of all. I guess, well, however you want to tell the story, how did you figure it out and, and, and how, are, how are they doing it? Okay. How are they picking up on this field? I can answer those questions to different extents. Uh, you know, the first one I can tell you, the second one is still, the jury's still out. But uh, they, so I knew from my internship at, at this Friday Harbor Labs and working with this Tritonia, this CISLAG that orients magnetic fields, that a lot of, that one of the ways that, animals do this trick or they are believed to do this trick involves harvesting iron, magnetic iron, just like the one in the compass needle. All right. Uh, and so one of the ways that organisms do this is by basically either manufacturing or consuming tiny magnets from their environment and then assembling kind of like a molecular or, or intracellular compass needle, not unlike the compass needle here. And the best example, or rather the only validated example of this is the bacteria that live in basically every pond and lake. If you have a pond and lake around you and you go and you scoop some mud from the bottom, you're gonna capture some of this magnetotactic bacteria. And inside of them, they make this pearl necklace of little compasses, little irons that are magnetized and these they, they had to be a particular size and shape in order to, for all of these beads to behave together as one needle rather than for each one just to try and turn on its own. But they do it, and these bacteria basically use this to find their way in the water column. So if, if they get disturbed and, and, and some animal or somebody kicks the water and the mud up into the water column where there is too much oxygen, for them to, to survive, they will use the magnetic field lines to basically swim down towards the bottom again, all right? And so that's 
you know, we've known that for a long time, and we know that there are ones in the northern hemisphere and some in the southern hemisphere, and they go different directions because the magnetic field is pointing in different directions. And so that's what we knew. We know even many of the genes involved in this in the, in the bacteria. And people have done a lot of work with animals that use magnetic fields, and they have managed to isolate this type of magnetic particles from their tissues. So. Okay, yeah. wait, wait, wait. So but how, what are they eating that contains, like, where it, are these little iron particles? Yeah. That... So they're <laughs> everywhere. So, so magnetite is a very common, uh, it's a very common material in the soil uh, and in, in, you know, in the yeah, soil environments. And so, but under abiotic conditions, the magnetite, they will be very amorphous. So there's like a crystals of different sizes and shapes. When you're looking at this bacteria, uh, the way that they do it is they actually start in the bacteria, which you have to divide. And so then sometimes they had to assemble these things from scratch. Uh, and they start with like one little one. And then they just kind of like an oyster, they kind of seed the next one. And so they kind of assemble these things where they basically magnetize and then the next one, and then the next one. And so they put them all in the right alignment. Uh, and so one of the ways that animals could get access to these would be obviously following the same path as the bacteria do it, right? Right. And the other one could be just consuming all organisms like bacteria, which already pre-assembled them, right? And they are so everywhere, right? So these right. bacteria are everywhere. So uh, however, I mean, people have done the experiment it's i've done it with the magnet with this sea slugs that i told you they were huge terrible experiment uh where like you froze this whole thing in liquid nitrogen and then chop it into tiny bits with plastic cutlery you know to not introduce any contamination and then basically boil this thing until there was nothing left uh and then use a strong magnet to pull anything that was magnetic out of that soup, you know? Oh. And, and that's how we pull them out of the, the, the sea slugs. And people have done this in other organisms, like I believe, you know, bees and even birds and other animals, uh, they have found magnetic particles. Now, where they come from, you don't get to answer that question. Uh, and you know, what were they doing there? Are they just common in all organisms? You know, all of that stuff is not known, but they definitely have been found. Uh, so the possibility that they may be used for this. And, and that is kind of what triggered me because I was a postdoc at UT Austin working on, on locomotion. And I came across a paper uh, by this group in England where they have used, uh, you know, they have basically detected magnetic particles in the worm. And okay. they just measured it and then left it at that, you know? And so I was, I just read the paper and I was like, this is very weird because I know from my previous work that, you know, you often find these particles in animals that orient to magnetic fields. And so that kind of made me wonder. And one of the great things about worms is that it is often the, the fastest thing is to just do the experiment rather than to even tell anyone about it. Right. Uh, my, my PI, the time that it took me to walk down to my PI's office and, and run this by him, uh, it was longer than 
to, to drop a bunch of worms on a plate and put them next to a magnet and just see what happened, right? <laughs> and uh, what, ha- what happened? They went, they went towards the magnet, you know? Wow. And I was like, what? You know, and, and so I, I was really struck, you know, it was very, very weird. And we tried it a, a number of ways and we tried it under different conditions and it kept happening, right? And, but it was really messy. And uh, so it's, you know, it's not like there are different kinds of sensory modalities. You know, if somebody yells fire, if you see a fire, you know exactly what to do, whether you're a mouse, a person or an elephant, you hit away from it. There are so other stimuli like the magnetic field where it's there all the time. It's not like there is a fire constantly raging. The magnetic field is constantly there. And animals had to choose when to pay attention to it or when to ignore it, right? Mm. And so, for example, birds migrate, my butterflies and fish, they don't just all migrate once to the magnetic field and then they are done. They choose when it's the, the mating season or when the seasons are changing, then they decide, okay, now it's time for me to pay attention to this sensory modality and I'm going to do it. So kind of teasing apart the behavior from a lot of the noise has been a a huge challenge because we know so little about it. And I didn't even know why will these things even care about the magnetic field, right? Because the only reason I tested it is because somebody found this irony, this magnetic irony in them. And so we began the process of trying to figure out, are they actually doing this? Is it something else that they are doing? And fortunately for C. elegans, so much is known about their behavior because there's so many people doing this amazing work that there are lots of, you know, resources, you know? And so if I, if I took this syslag and I tried to figure this out, nobody's working with the syslag. There is no molecular tools or, you know, anything known about it. But with the worm, People have looked at how they sense touch, how they sense smell, how they sense electric fields, how they sense humidity, all these other modalities. And so we can use their work to kind of simplify our work and be like, okay, so if it is, if we, what we're seeing here is just, uh, is, you know, temperature based, then the animal should behave like what they, these people have described, you know? And so we kind of started that way. Um, and yeah, again, because the animals are so fast, they grow in three days from an egg to an adult. Uh, and so it's very quick and you can run tons of assays. We were able to kind of discount a lot of what people already knew for other modalities. And of course, you know, looking at the behavior of the animal in, in response to these magnetic fields. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of conversations with physicists trying to make sense of what is going on in here? Because you look at the behavior, you know, a trajectory of an animal and you're like, how does that translate to not a, not a magnet in a worm on a plate, but how does that translate <laughs> to the earth magnetic field in the animal, maybe in the soil or somewhere? Uh, so that was not trivial uh, and it continues to not be trivial, you know, uh, yeah. look into. Um, but yeah. Well, can, can you give us some, some highlights of yeah. some of the ways that, uh, well, and, and why they might have, why they might be paying attention, you yeah. know, to the magnetic field, because they're not migrating, right? Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, trying to traverse long distances. So why would this little wiggle worm care right. about that the is, magnetic field? That's, the, I asked myself that question for a very long time. I still am, uh, but I have some, 
some kind of uh, ideas what may be going on. Um, so I knew, like you said, that, you know, worms don't migrate south every year. We don't see them, you know, go crawling between our feet, you know, twice a year or anything like that. So that was out of the question. They're, they're so small. They're like the size of an, the dot on an eye in your text, you know, so like they're really tiny, one millimeter long. Wow. Uh, and so their world universe is inside this, you know, soil, this dark place, you know. And uh, so for me, uh, I, you know, I was thinking if this animal is using the magnetic field to go anywhere, it's likely not horizontally, like we use the magnetic field to, to drive around. It might be vertically, like, you know, like animals in the ocean can migrate up and down in the water column, for example, right? Right. And there was some work previously that had shown that over the season, over the year, you can find sea elegance at different kind of depth in the soil. And, and this is believed to have to do with, with the temperature changes in the, in the soil. Uh, over winter and summer. And there is evidence of other organisms in the soil kind of in, engaging in these vertical soil migrations, which I thought is kind of fascinating, you know, because everybody thinks of this jellyfish in the ocean going up and down, but around our feet, you know, there's all these critters, you know, across taxa that are apparently going up and down in the soil depending on the time of the year. Uh, and so that is kind of... That was the only thing I could think of that may make sense for these things to pay attention to. And so the experiment that we did uh, to look into that, uh, typically we, we test the worms on a Petri dish, uh, which is very artificial because they don't grow, they don't live on the surface of the soil. They live in kind of in a three-dimensional matrix. Uh, and so we test them on a, on a Petri dish and put a magnet on one side and see which way the worms prefer to go. And instead of doing that, uh, we uh, fill up some pipettes with, uh, with a gelatin, uh, which is called agar, and then we in, in, uh, injected the worms into the middle of these things. And then we put the pipettes either horizontally on the top of a table, and then we watch which way the animals went. And when that was the case, they were basically going equally to either end of, of the pipette if you put them in the middle of the pipette. But when we put the worms, uh, the pipettes up uh, vertically, we started to see that they preferred to go in one direction. And the, the way that they were going is when they were fed uh, within 30 minutes of being fed, they will tend to go upwards towards the surface of the pipette. But when the, uh, after 30 minutes and they started to get hungry, they, they started to migrate downwards in the pipette towards the bottom. Um, and then uh, to see if there was uh, some correlation with magnetic fields, we um, built a magnetic field around this that was basically we could control the polarity of the field. And so we reversed the Earth's magnetic field so it would point now in the opposite direction. And when we repeated the experiment, we saw the animals flip their preference and now they went in the opposite direction. Okay, so, so, that, yeah. so evidence that I was born when it was all flipped upside right, down. Right, okay. we all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, the animals seem to have been using this, and so uh, right now my my working hypothesis is that maybe the animals, uh, these animals also known to to kind of their environment is associated with the kind decaying uh, vegetal matter, uh, and so 
if you have compost piles, they'll be in there. If there is a rotten fruits on the surface, you know, on an orchard, that, that's a lot of the places where they found them. Uh, and also in the roots of plants uh, associated with some of the bacteria, the mansion bacteria, basically, right? And, and so one of the ideas that we have is like maybe they, they can migrate between roots and surface to, to try and find, you know, if they're associated with fruits and with things like that, uh, imagine a rotten peach uh, would basically provide like a planet, you know, for, for a one worm reach that can, you know, give rise to like a whole population, you know, so right. it's like a jackpot. Uh, but then if it gets hungry and doesn't find anything, it can just turn back and return to its original source, you know, in the roots. And, and that kind of provide a mechanism maybe for it to happen. Sure. Uh, people have done work with the worms and shown that if you put it on, um, if you give it patches of food, it, the worm will feed on it. But if the food is not very good, it will take its chance and go away and see if it finds something better. The worse the food, the more often and the longer it will go away and before it comes back to it, right? Right. And so that, that's kind of, um, uh, we all do this, uh, but they do it too. And, and it's kind of a, a mechanism for animals to fill up a belly with bad food and then try their chance to see if they can find a better restaurant, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and okay. And so, but you also detected a cell that might be at the heart of receiving yeah. this information, right? Because as you pointed out, you could eat the compass and, and probably, I mean, I don't know if we've, they've found, um, you know, iron particles in human tissue, but we eat all kinds of things that may, uh, you know, and if you eat soil, their geophagy is a thing, um, you know, then maybe we have it in our tissues, but we don't respond to it. Right. We're not attuned to it. Um, but so, so you, you sort of discovered this cell that is responding and then communicating with the brain about this magnetic field. So yeah. what is this magical cell? And do we not have those cells? I, I don't know. I can't tell you whether we have those cells or not. I can tell you that we do have uh, iron, you know, people have found, you know, in, in our tissues, you know, so we have it, uh, you know, at least people find it sometimes. Uh, but yes, uh, Judging by the fact that neither of us are extremely good at finding our way around, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going with, we probably don't have that tap yet, you know, right. Right. Um, and there is probably a good reason, you know, we don't migrate for survival. Uh, it's not something that we had to do all the time. And so there yeah. is not a lot of uh, evolutionary pressure taking out everyone who is bad at, you know, migrating, you know, 50 miles and coming back. True. But, but in, in these animals, they, like I mentioned, we know all the neurons. They have 30 pairs of sensory neurons. Each one is known. A lot of the behaviors and things that they do are known. Many of them are polymodal, meaning that they don't just detect one sensory modality, but multiple. And, uh, and so I basically started uh, genetically ablating them, which means I just you know, got animals where uh, those different cells were dead you know, uh, or induced to die, apoptose or whatever. Um, and then tested whether the animals could orient to magnetic fields or not. And it didn't take very long to, to kind of hone in on these cells. They, they, they're called the finger neurons, the AFD cells. Uh, and the reason they call that is that they have a cell body, like, uh, like all neurons, and then they send this process to the tip uh, of the nose of the worm. And inside the, the nose, 
uh, they have these villi, uh, which are like little hairs that are aligned anterior to posterior, mostly like 50 of them. Uh, and this neuron has been extremely well studied by people looking at its main job, which is to detect temperature. And it's the worms can memorize, they're extremely good at the, telling temperature. They can detect a hundredth of a degree Celsius change in temperature using this neuron. Uh, and they can memorize a, a particular temperature they grew up at. And then if you put them on a temperature gradient, they'll migrate towards that. Uh, and they will use this neuron for that, okay? Um, and so there were many reagents. And so we obtained some of them when this neuron was gone. And if the neuron was gone, the animals couldn't do the behavior anymore. Okay. Uh, and then we obtained uh, an animals where somebody had uh, put a, a, an artificial molecule inside this neuron that basically emits light whenever the neuron was excited. And this is called a G-CAMP, um, which is an engineer molecule. Uh, and then basically, I tell my students, it's like in the cartoon of when somebody has an idea, you see the light bulb go off. And this is like the real version of that. You see the, the, the neuron light up whenever it has a thought, so to speak. Okay. Um, and so we expose the animals to, to a, a strong change in magnetic field. And then we saw that this neuron all the time became brighter as a consequence of that. Okay. Uh, and we tried different neurons and they did not. Uh, become brighter as a consequence of that. And so, and then when we broke this neuron in different ways, uh, then it became unable to become excited by this magnetic okay. stimulus. Okay, so um, that told us um, that this neuron was a part of the way that this animal was detecting. Uh, because it's C. elegans, um, you can get animals where this neuron is literally isolated from all other neurons. Um, they, because it has no electrical or, or chemical synapses connecting it, and, and a situation that would kill anything else. But somehow the worms managed to survive this. And when we stimulated these basically immobile worms uh, with the magnetic field, the neurons still lit up. Uh, and so that suggested that it wasn't that the neuron was listening to somebody else and repeating the song to us. It was itself likely detecting the magnetic field itself, right? Okay. Okay. So, so we don't know if, if we have those cells and we, do we know if other animals have those? We know that other animals have those cells, but not by recording a, at a, a cell that detects, but maybe at a cell that listens to those cells. And so okay. there are, there are work on the, the CISLAT that I actually became interested in when I, when I went as an undergrad, that's the first uh, animal that people put electrodes in the brain and you stimulated the animal with a, with a magnetic field. And sometime later, like eight minutes later, the brain will light up. Like these cells will like take notice of that manipulation that you did. Uh, but this wasn't necessarily the cell that was detecting, but some right. cell that was kind of using the information. Got it. And people have done this with birds also, uh, you know, in Texas um, and people put pigeons and then stimulate them and then also record from their brain. So we know that brains can detect, can sense the magnetic information. It's the tricky part is getting at the, the sensor part. I see. Okay. Well, and you know, so it's really interesting. There was just recently a study came uh, that came out showing great white sharks 
all head to like this one location. Like people think sharks aren't social and sharks are actually quite social and they have friends and social networks, you know, Facebook for sharks. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, and, and, and they do this in the Pacific and they're sort of in between halfway to the Hawaiian islands, but it's not just great white sharks. Um, it's tiger sharks, hammerhead sharks, and, and they can come from as far as a thousand miles away. And so a lot of, researchers were thinking they're doing this uh, via the magnetic field, right? But how do you, I mean, you know, we don't, we don't really want to, you know, stick electrodes into every single type of animal to figure out, you know, it's enough to know, okay, the brain is receiving this information and maybe using it. But so what they did, they actually caught some smaller sharks, uh, bonnet sharks, and they brought them into the lab and then um, what they think is that they have these special receptors in their in their nose, yeah. um, ampullae of Lorenzini huh. is what they're called. And, and they're electroreceptors. And so this is where you have this sort of dual, you know, or right. multimodal sensory right. organism, you know, or sensory uh, multimodal sensory receptors. Right. So they usually use them or they know they use them right to detect prey because yeah. the electrical charges of of prey um, and the voltage. Um, and so I guess they think since these receptors already send information to the brain, there's a, there's a pathway, right? And if they can be sensitive to the magnetic field, then that could be the mechanism of how the brain is receiving this information. The question I have is they used copper, right? They did this copper cage. So so what's up with copper and doing, you used copper too, I think in your right. experiment. So, yeah. so why copper and not iron? Oh, because uh, the resistance, uh, so copper has, it's a very good electrical conductor, right? And so uh, that means you put a certain voltage across and then you have, you know, movement of, of charges through it without a, a huge resistance. And one of the ways that researchers manufacture magnetic fields is through uh, coils. Uh, and so you could manufacture a magnetic field with a magnet. So like you could take an iron, uh, a rock that is magnetic, you know, and, and then put it next to an animal and then see how it affects its behavior. But that we have limited uh, ways that you can alter the, the magnetic field and how the presentation of the stimulus and so on. So instead, what many people do and what we do is you take a, a, a basically build this coil system where you have this uh, copper wire that you can wrap and wrap and wrap, making these huge uh, schools. And when you pass current through that, uh, they generate a magnetic field. And you can control this magnetic field precisely by changing the amount of current that, that you pass through it so that you can for example, rotate it, or you can make it bigger or smaller in any direction that you want. Uh, and so that allows you to find control. So it's not, ma uh, copper is not magnetic, right? So it's not, you know, okay. a copper <laughs> magnet out there, but the, the fact that it, that it, it's such a good conductor of electricity allows people to basically create this. So we have lots of coils in our lab. Uh, there is one that I haven't used yet, you know, like sitting next to my desk. Uh, and so, yeah, that's that's the reason for those okay. experiments. And yeah, most of the experiments for 
for to figure out if animals can do this thing at the behavioral level are involves some manipulation like this, where you put the animal in an environment and then you alter the magnetic field surrounding it, right? And, and there okay. is always a magnetic field. As long as you're on this planet, you are going to be in the presence of the Earth magnetic field. Uh, but people, it's a vector, so it's kind of you can think of it as an arrow with a direction in a length and an amplitude. And so you can add to that vector or subtract from that vector and basically arrive at whatever resulting vector that you want. Um, one of the first things we did with our warrants was to basically make a magnetic field that was exactly the same the, the, uh, orientation, but the opposite polarity as the Earth. So to create kind of like an, a magnetic vacuum uh, and then see if the worms would get lost, you know, because there was no stimulus around them, right? Did they, did they? Did they yeah, they went randomly in every direction. <laughs> so uh, I relate to these worms so much. Yes. Um, okay. Um, so I, you know, and I want to be mindful of your time. And so if you'll be generous a, a little bit longer, I have a yeah. few more like questions. So I'm curious. Okay. So this may not be related, but you know, we have this pineal gland, right? Which, which is sensitive to daylight, uh, sort of seasonality photo period yeah. is that like you know a, a way to tap into for other animals the magnetic field if it's not through their nose or you know uh, or through um so like you mentioned before with the with the sharks um a lot of the magnetic uh, structures that have been associated with animal detecting is actually being associated with are organs that are serving other sensory modalities, okay? So in the case of the sharks, there is this electric sensor to detect prey around them, but yep. somehow it became advantageous for the animal to also pay attention to this kind of, probably this kind of noise that it could feel coming from the, the earth magnetic field. And at some point it stopped being a noise, but it, it, it acquires meaning to it, right? right? And and so it, and it was advantageous for its survival to pay attention to it. Uh, in the case of many birds that require light to, to see, to, to navigate in the magnetic field, not all birds do, by the way, okay. but some do. This is a crazy to me. A species as closely related as birds are to each other, some require light, some do not and rely on a different mechanism. Uh, but the ones that require light, they are, the idea is that they're using a modified photoreceptor in the retina, uh, just like they have modified photoreceptors that can detect polarized light, for example, wow. uh, that there is a receptor in there that somehow can see the magnetic field. And uh, in my brain, uh, the idea would be like, imagine like a, a beautiful sunset on the beach and you look at the sky and you see this orange and purple and, and blues, and you know which way the sun is, you know which way west is, if you look at the color of the sky, you know, wow. and so these animals perhaps are being basically literally able to see the magnetic field like superimposed on their, on their visual system, you know? Wow. Um, so, so that's some of them, but not all of them. Other animals um, do not require light and they can are happy to orient to magnetic fields in, in the dark. So for other animals, the idea uh, is that these iron particles are, there might be some iron particles in their tissue that are attached to some touch receptors. And so they literally feel the pull of the magnetic field. And, and to me, this would be like having an annoying sibling 
kind of pulling on your sleeve <laughs> to go in a particular way, no matter what you're doing, they're always pulling to you the same way. And so you know which way your sibling is uh, because you're eternally aware of their pull on you, you know? And yeah, so, so that all of these things are kind of relying on sensory organs. Even ours that we study, our idea is that there is this temperature sensor and that somehow has been co-opted to kind of sense uh, the magnetic field, you know, and, and who knows right. the history of that. But sure. in every case, there is no, as far as I know, there is no, uh, nobody has proposed the, the evolution of a magnetic detector like right. in, a, in the absence of other modalities. They're all kind of piggybacking on uh, something else. You okay. Know. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. And, and there was another study that came out that, um, I mean, we know that some animals use this, uh, to find their way home and it might explain how, you know, the dog that was lost 300 miles away got home because the study that just came out showed that dogs, um, will use it, uh, to find a shortcut. So if you take them somewhere where they've never been and, uh, their owner isn't visible, and in the absence of other cues, they basically orient first on the north-south axis, and then they find the fastest way, yeah. uh, which is it you know, blows my mind. Um, but I just want to talk quickly, you know, just touch briefly on on conservation because yeah. if so many animals are relying on you know this uh, magnetic field to navigate and to find their way to find food to uh, you know get to good conditions and you did some work that showed if, if environmental conditions were different if it were drier um, you know it altered this when we think about climate change and and other things that we're doing are we interrupting the message that animals other animals are receiving from this magnetic field I think in all likelihood we are. I mean, just thinking about our organism and who knows how representative it might be of other species, uh, maybe representative of many like soil dwelling species are at least. Um, but, you know, they, in their case, they are harvesting, they're harnessing their temperature detecting, uh, you know, sensor. And so any change on on the temperature ranges that they, they are able to detect might might migrate them to the point where they're no longer able to use the magnetic field as a reliable cue or clue, right? Um, right. So uh, for other organisms, that um, that uh, one of the things that come to mind is that the higher high power lines, for example, um, that there are some literature that shows that they can disrupt migratory, you know, animals, migratory birds that that travel through these regions. Uh, you know, the birds can go in and then come out in a different direction, you know, and that, that's kind of one of the ways people figure out how, how birds, how pigeons were oriented to magnetic fields had to do with this like messenger pigeon that, that will never arrive at a certain destination. And then they follow the pigeon and they, they found a spot on the ground where every pigeon will get there and then they will come out in a random direction. Oh and my gosh. Ago, there was a magnetic ore underneath the ground in there. And so the pigeons were basically spun around and they just fly over So that was, you know. Oh my gosh, those are pigeons. pigeons. And they have no idea, right? They're just like, you know, yeah. and I know some animals get lost, you know, there there can be some birds, they some they tend to think they get blown off course, but it could yeah. be that maybe they encountered something that disrupted. An anomaly, yeah, so that happens. And, you know, as I said, 
well, the, the magnetic field is changing and there is evidence, uh, beautiful evidence. Uh, and if you, you know, if you like to go to Hawaii and they have this uh, active volcanic, uh, you know, lava there, and that has been solidifying over, you know, many, many thousands of years. And when the lava was wet, still uh, the, the magnetic particles inside of it were aligned with the magnetic field mm -hmm. until they solidified and they were locked in position. And people have done studies where they look at the, it's basically at the record of these rocks. And so you can learn what the magnetic north was by looking at different layers of this rock, basically. Oh, wow. You know? Wow. Kind of like a fossil record, so to speak, you know? And, uh, and so we know for that and other lines of evidence that the earth magnetic field certainly changes every, you know, few hundred thousand years. Uh, and so animals and species that do this trick had to have been able to kind of uh, either lost the ability and, and resume it at some point or or maybe so withstand it, right? And perhaps that, you know, it's not surprising with species that rely on multiple sensory modalities may be able to kind of uh, respond to somewhat slow changes in the magnetic field. But those yeah. aren't necessarily the order of what humans are able to introduce, right? With our That's activity, right. we can make very, very quick and dramatic changes that are not much for, you know, the slow over right. hundreds of thousands of years, you know, changing in, in natural change in the magnetic field. Yeah. Right. So yeah, so, I imagine that that will make a difference, especially for species uh, like the turtles or other species that they cannot get this wrong. Uh, you know, if a loggerhead turtle doesn't turn um, west when it gets to England, it gets sucked up into the uh, uh, Arctic and it's going to die, you know? Right. So, that, that can have a big impact. Wow. And so one final, uh, you know, little thread on humans, since we don't have evidence yet that we can tap into this. I mean, some people, maybe those vortexes that people think are around the world are actually like really strong magnetic poles and they're all just attracted to it <laughs> because they've eaten a lot of iron particles. Right. Um, but, but have you heard of this thing called earthing or grounding? No, can you explain it to me? Yeah, I will. Okay, so it's this therapeutic uh, therapy that is yeah. recommended, you know, to reconnect with the earth, to ground into the earth. Okay. Um, and it's basically the idea is that you can electrically reconnect with the earth by being barefoot on the soil or or laying naked in the grass. Although one suggestion I found was that you connect a metal rod to the ground outside and then connect the rod to your body with a wire, which okay. seems like a really good way to get electrocuted. I could. Yes. I would not do this during an electric <laughs> storm for sure. But uh, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, this is pure speculation yeah. and it's like this, you know, kind of, um, you know, new age, uh, you know, um, philosophy of you can be connected to the earth, but I'm wondering now if it's not really electrical uh, sensation, but magnetic, oh. you know, yeah. because I, people I, wear magnets for healing, right? They yeah. wear all these magnets yes. convinced yeah. that it heals things. Yes. So I, I couldn't tell you. I, I will say that once I was an undergrad and we built this huge magnetic cage to stimulate these sea slugs, the thought did cross our minds of opening a store in the mall, you know, and charging people 
to sit in a Hawaiian magnetic field if they couldn't travel there themselves, you know. Uh, but, you know, we, you know, there was something that didn't sit right with us. And so we abandoned that, you know, fortunately. But uh, right. like, you're, like you say, there, there is um, a, a lot of kind of uh, fashions or whatever you want to call them where people like uh, try to interact with this because they are fascinating and we don't know a lot about them. And so they... That, I mean, the way, the positive way to look at it is like it, it makes people wonder, you know, and it's that scientific curiosity, yes. you know, and then, you know, many people, unfortunately, they won't explore it further and they will settle for right. a bracelet or something like that. But I mean, there is nothing wrong with uh, having your feet on the grass. Uh, there are. Um, so this is going the opposite direction. I know from work on electric fields uh, that. Uh, the, there is a, this electric field around in the, in the ground that is different voltage between the ground and the air. And that basically living things like flowers have this electric field around them. And I know there is work that bees are able to tell when a flower was pollinated or was you know already tapped by another bee by how the electric field around it looks like you know whether it right. was already discharged or whether it's you know wow. has not been tapped yet and so if you were to say that there is you know you could you know take your shoes off and put your feet on the grass and somehow you know ground yourself you know you might experience that change now where that's in the order that any human could perceive I'm not aware of humans able to detect electric fields besides uh, obviously uh, putting your finger into uh, an outlet and, and, you know, other than that, you know, I don't know any, any uh, advantageous or evolutionary conserved mechanism that makes us detect electric fields or magnetic fields. So I don't know whether that would work, but it probably would ground you and, uh, and whether you or a bee may be able to tell the difference, you know, right. And, a change. and if it makes you get outside and put your feet Absolutely. in the grass, yes, we I know that that. that that influences your well-being and maybe it does it through it through electrical charge and yeah. maybe it does it through magnets and maybe it just does it because it feels good. It feels good. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Andres, this has been fascinating. I have learned so much and I know there's still so much to learn. So thank you for taking the time to share your research and your love of, of C. elegans, your wiggle worm. And remember everyone, wiggle with purpose. <laughs> thank you very much. If you want to keep up with Andreas and his research, head to the show notes for links to his lab and how to connect with him on Facebook or Twitter. You can get there through my website, jenniferverdelin.com or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. Next week, we're starting our special series, Women in Science, thanks to a small grant from the American Geophysical Union. Our first scientist is none other than particle astrophysicist and author, Dr. Katie Mack. We're going to be talking about, well, the universe, black holes, and how we are going to be able to look deep, deep, deep into the history of other galaxies with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope that's happening this week, December 22nd. Let's see if it's a success. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. And you can follow me on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen and the show at Wild Connect Pod.